Hey, my name is Andrew Robinson. I'm an assistant producer on the Political Climate Podcast, and this episode is brought to you with support from Lyft. Lyft is continuing its leadership in creating a cleaner, healthier, and more equitable future with a bold commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles used on the Lyft platform by 2030. The shift to EVs will create opportunities for drivers to lower their costs and keep more of their earnings. Transportation currently accounts for the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and Lyft is committed to leading the way to decarbonize its platform through vehicle electrification. Learn more at liftimpact.com slash electric. I think most people in Texas have kind of been, I guess, in the in a odd kind of way, proud of the fact that we've got everybody over here is talking about it and trying to do all these policies on both of the other coasts. And here we are on the third coast, just kind of zooming ahead with a market-based system to kind of kick all your asses. And, you know, we're ahead of, you know, every nation in the world except for four of them. They say everything's bigger in Texas. The hairdos, the pickup trucks, and the renewable energy projects? Yep, those two. Don't mess with Texas when it comes to wind and solar power production. But how did the Lone Star State, the home of America's oil and gas industry, become a clean energy leader? And is the rise of clean energy influencing this red state's politics? On this episode, we talked to Pat Wood, former Texas utility regulator and chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, about all of this and more. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. On the line from the west side of Los Angeles is Brandon Hurlbutt, our Democrat on the show. He's a partner at Boundary Stone Partners, a clean energy investor, and uh, he's the former chief of staff of the Department of Energy. I love that I added clean energy investor to your title now, Brandon. We're talking about that. <laughs> we can talk about it anytime. Yeah. That's where I spend most of my day. Absolutely. I know. We need, we need to talk about that more. Uh, also on the line is Shane Skelton, our Republican, a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to Representative Paul Ryan. Um, so, Shane, I know you have been living through some of these blackouts and brownouts we're experiencing here in California. I just want to know, are you guys OK? Like, what's going on out there? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I need a longer title now, Brandon. So thanks for that <laughs> in order to be able to compete. Um, uh, yeah, and, and I'll be perfectly honest with you guys. I wasn't even home. Um, we got an email alert saying that, you know, we were participating in this rolling brownout. So it didn't impact me at all. I was at a friend's house. Uh, my whole family was. Um, so I, I don't want to sit here and, you know, cry like, oh, my gosh, it was so bad for me. I'm more, you know, upset about it from an intellectual perspective is that, you know, we're in 2020 and we live in, you know, the most populated state in the country, I think. And we haven't figured out how to keep the lights on. And, and that's awful. And I don't want anyone to go down the route of saying that's because California, you know, addresses climate change. That's because California has clean energy. I think clean energy is fantastic. I think addressing climate change is fantastic. I blame it on the regulatory structures. I blame it on sort of archaic rules and regulations. There are trillions of dollars of capital in this world that want to be invested in energy, that want to be invested in energy technology, that want to be invested in energy infrastructure. And, and we just have an outdated archaic system. And after this happened, you know, 20 years ago, or I guess a little 
little bit more. I don't know, it was about 20 years ago. It's unacceptable that we didn't make the changes necessary in two decades to stop it from happening again. Yeah. So hundreds of thousands of Californians lost power over the weekend as we're experiencing this intense heat wave. I think temperatures in Death Valley right now are like the highest ever, maybe on record. So it's crazy. And the last time these kinds of rolling outages happened was back in 2001 during the energy crisis. But yeah, lots uh, to discuss there. And we're going to bring that up with our guest, Pat Wood, in just a moment. But first, Brandon, I got to get your thoughts on the latest news item coming out of the Democratic camp is the Joe Biden Kamala Harris ticket. What are your thoughts? Pretty cool to have the uh, home state senator uh, be on the ticket. Um, Look, he had a tough choice to make. There were so many uh, amazing uh, candidates for that job. You know, I was a big supporter of Elizabeth Warren. Uh, worked in the Obama administration with Susan Rice. Uh, you know, there was, there was a lot of tremendous talent. Um, you know, the Democrats have, have such a great bench, I think that was illustrated on uh, that VP uh, selection process. And she's a terrific campaigner. Uh, and I think she, she shows that, um, you know, what the Democratic Party is about, what Joe Biden's about. I mean, uh, he, you know, is empowering a, uh, a younger, talented woman who, uh, competed hard against him in the primary. I mean, could you imagine Donald Trump, you know, after he took that shot, you know, Biden took that shot from Kamala on the debate that was very famous, like picking someone like that. I think it shows like who, you know, Joe Biden, um, you know, doesn't hold grudges or anything like that. He's about what's best for the country. And uh, she's an amazing pick. And so he he went with her and I'm really excited about the ticket. Um, it's going to be, uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm for the Democratic ticket right now. I mean, look at those numbers and fundraising. The first 24 hours, they raised tens of millions of dollars. I mean, it's really great. So, Brandon, real, real quick question here. Um, if, if let's say that, that Biden wins and let's say that he decides to serve only one term, is that then, you know, Senator Harris, is she, is she you know, the Democratic candidate? Or do you think there would be another sort of Democratic Party deciding who they want, who they want to run as their as their lead candidate. Do you think she's been handed the job? I guess is what I'm saying. Or do you think this is the ticket and we'll revisit in four years, regardless of outcome? It's a great question. I think there was a lot of politicking leading up to her choice for that reason, uh, because people felt like if he chose someone like Kamala, he'd be sort of an anointing um, the next uh, you know president because there's such an advantage to being um, having that incumbency. I don't know. I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, uh, it's very tough if if to run against uh, an incumbent vice president of your own ticket in a primary. Um, but, um, you know, this could be unusual circumstances, which is sort of one term uh, if that's what, you know, President Biden or soon to be hopefully President Biden chooses. So I think it remains to be seen, but it's a very good question. Well, we are recording this on a Monday and the Democratic National Convention is kicking off today. Uh, so it'll be exciting to watch and see, you know, how the uh, how the party performs, how the energy's like coming out of that. And we'll also be watching to see the reactions coming out of Texas, a state that may actually be in play for Democrats this election cycle. It's also a red state that's leading on clean energy deployment. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode with Pat Wood, principal for Wood 3 Resources, who was named by Governor George W. Bush to head up the Public Utility Commission of Texas. He went on to serve as chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, leading the responses to the 2000-2001 California energy crisis, the bankruptcy of Enron, and the 2003 Northeastern Power blackout. Under his leadership, FERC promoted the development of a cleaner, more comprehensive power generation fleet, natural gas infrastructure expansions, and a more robust power transmission grid. 
Finally, before we turn to our interview with Pat, a quick request to our listeners. Please hit subscribe if you haven't yet. That'll allow you to hear all of our episodes that come out each week and some bonus episodes that we have coming up. So stay tuned for that. Also, if you have a moment, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us reach more people. We really appreciate it. Let us know your thoughts about the show, things you'd like us to cover more of. Uh, love that feedback. So quick plug for leaving a review for the Political Climate Podcast. And with that, now let's turn to Texas. Hi, Pat. Thank you for coming on. Are you all set up there for the recording? Okay, so I love being able to see your faces, but I had to do that from a little bit of a point of altitude. So the three books that you're propped on top of right now are Margaret Thatcher, Path to Power, Margaret Thatcher, The Downing Street Years, and Laura Bush, Spoken from the Heart. We love those right-wing women. Yes, when I was at my, when I was a corporate lawyer, one of our clients was the Margaret Thatcher Foundation. So as a first year associate, I got one of those brutal projects where you had to go through like all of the records <laughs> and it took me like days and days and days of like paperwork. <laughs> I'm surprised that education didn't help improve your worldview at all. <laughs> well, um, they come around when they come around. So. That's, right, that's right. That's right. On their own time. I can deal with that party, not the party of QAnon. <laughs> he told you, Brandon. Brandon now thinks that like we're all diehard QAnon. I never heard of this till a week ago, for what it's worth. Yeah, we're a, we're a, I think we're all in the process of, of getting over the grief and now taking our party back. So it'd be fun to hear about that. <laughs> Well, there's lots that we could dig into here on the political side of things, and we are going to. Uh, but first, let's get wonky on the energy piece. Texas, as we all know, is the home of the nation's oil and gas industry, but it's also become a clean energy superpower. Texas is the top U.S. producer of both crude oil and natural gas, but it also leads the nation in wind power generation, producing roughly 28% of all the U.S. wind power electricity in 2019. Solar, meanwhile, is on a tear. Thanks to technological innovations, the cost of developing solar farms has dropped by about 40% in Texas in the last five years. That's according to the Solar Energy Industries Association. And last year, Texas generated more energy from renewable energy sources than coal. Now, as the coronavirus pandemic has devastated the state's already struggling oil and gas industry, wind and solar production are actually on a trajectory to experience record growth. According to the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, the nonprofit that oversees Texas's electrical grid, the state's utility-scale solar capacity is expected to increase 150% this year to around 5,700 megawatts. Next year, installed solar capacity is expected to grow more than 130% to around 13,500 megawatts, again according to ERCOT. The rise of renewable energy isn't the only notable shift taking place in Texas. The state's politics are shifting, too. Joe Biden, the Democratic presidential contender, is actually polling almost neck and neck with President Trump right now, even though Trump handily won the state four years ago. So how did Texas become a clean energy superpower? What are the politics behind this rise and what are the politics in Texas more broadly moving forward? We're going to tackle all this, but first, Pat, 
give us some context. I rhymed off a bunch of stats there, but how did all of this happen? You had a front row seat as a public utility regulator. What enabled Texas to become the clean energy leader that it is today? Well, I was uh, uh, George Bush took office in 95 and I was one of his first appointments uh, to an open spot at the Public Utility Commission, a three member commission that oversaw the uh, power industry and the telecom industry. And his first charge to me that day he hired me was get us to a market. And then about a year later, I was in his office. And uh, we talked about, because I would go in there about every two weeks, and we'd talk about policy issues, things that were I was lawfully allowed to talk to the governor about, because I was restrained from being able to talk about contested cases and things like that. But um, he said to me as I was walking out the door, and I had my little, I think my little white shirt with my powered yellow suspenders and, you know, red tie. It was classic kind of, you know, it was a little a leftover from the 80s. but you know, kind of young Reagan Republican type walking out goes, hey, Pat, we like wind. And I said, we like what? He goes, you heard me. Go get smart on it. So I went back to talk to my fellow commissioner, who is also Bush appointee, Judy Walsh. And I said, Judy, here's what happened. She goes, well, we're just going to have to get smart, won't we? So over the next probably two years, in the context of uh, a transition that the legislature had already started on the on our first bill in 95 to a competitive power market. We required the utilities to consult with their customers about customer preferences for, you know, future things that are going to happen. And so one of the things we teed up was uh, inquiries about renewable energy and about conservation, uh, energy efficiency. And so this deliberative polling process, which I'll shorten it, but people uh, were randomly selected from across the utility service area. This was under a a deliberative polling process engineered by a UT professor, Fishkin, that Ross Perot used in his 92 campaign for the presidency to really talk about the complex issues he was in over the deficit and talking through things like that. So we use the same thing for a two to three day visit to a hotel the mom or the dad would be involved with us and the family would be given some other things to do in like Corpus Christi or Amarillo or Austin or whatever city it was in. And so we would, and there'd be big groups talking about big issues and then they break out into small groups. And that small group discussion I got to see with one way mirrors um, and was fascinating to listen to just people across the state talking about what they heard and what they think. And bottom line after about two years, I walked into Bush's office and I kind of said, we're going to roll out this report on all these things we've learned from these 14 um, kind of focus group things we've heard that have directed the utilities. And uh, he said, well, what'd you find out? And I said, we found out we like wind. And he just smiled at me. And uh, But it was amazing that people informed both on the costs and the benefits of all the nat- of the resources that we could use to power our grid were willing to actually pay more to uh, support, not a whole lot more, but enough more to make the, certainly the, at, the, at the time the economic balance work. But they were interested in uh, energy conservation actually even more than that. They wanted to know more about what can I do to conserve energy, use it more smartly. And then second, why aren't we using these renewable resources that are right here above our head? So that was a galvanizing event for us. And then we were in the context of moving the entire market to a competitive market 
um, where every customer could choose his or her retail supplier of electricity, much like you do on telephone or pretty much anything else in your life. Um, but not many states had done that. California was one that had uh, just recently done it, and it was before that market imploded over a number of issues, uh, which is a whole other story. But we we moved forward, and uh, part of that uh, comprehensive bill, and it was a very bipartisan uh, pro-competition bill, was uh, we want to put out a big welcome app for renewable energy. So there was something there called a renewable portfolio standard that said, hey, we want to get 2,000 more megawatts of uh, renewable energy here in the next 10 years because we only have 800 altogether. Pat, can I, can I follow up a little bit on that? I think, you know, Julia mentioned earlier that Texas has a lot of wind. And even though, you know, it doesn't have nearly as much solar as it has wind, I believe it's still the number one uh, renewable generation uh, state in the country, even more so than California. And as someone who's, you know, had experience in both Texas and running FERC, and a little, you know, more depth with the Republican Party than I have, because you've seen more generations of Republican leaders. What do you think happened and when do you think it happened that that turned Republicans into fossil fuel advocates as a as a reflexive, uh, you know, move as opposed to because I look at this and I say we want oil because there was a huge, robust oil market. We were importing too much. We had a huge deficit. It made sense to produce more. But it's not oil in and of itself that's so great. It's the fact that you want to have a little bit of control in the market. If we have a robust renewables market, why did Republicans start to turn against that? And do you know when exactly that happened? 2009, um, I would say, uh, and you know, to be fair, President Obama is probably the most pro-renewable president we've had. But the friend of my enemy is not my friend. Um, so that that what was kind of relatively kind of a quiet success during the Bush years of kind of getting things done through Department of Energy and kind of through FERC and, you know, kind of really using the non-discrimination aspect of all these statutes to kind of get the wind energy there at the poker table. This broad embrace, particularly through the stimulus bill, I mean, it, it saved the industry. So, I mean, looking back, it's probably, as one who cares about it, it's probably a a deal worth having done again, but that was eight pretty frosty years for a green Republican, just because President Obama and, you know, and now, now Biden, of course, are so stridently for it, that it made the Republicans who weren't really grounded in the kind of other attributes of uh, wind energy, which have nothing to do with climate change, but, you know, the fact it's local, the fact it's cheap, the fact that somebody gets to put it on their land and get paid royalties for the windmill being there, the fact it creates a lot of domestic jobs, all those kind of things that are classic economic development responses to any sort of industry tend to not be absorbed by a lot of people because they get swept up in this political climate change issue. And I'm like, guys, that's one of many attributes, but it's not the only selling point. And so that's generally what I think most people in Texas have kind of been, I guess, in the in a odd kind of way proud of the fact that we've got everybody over here is talking about it and trying to do all these policies on both of the other coasts and here we are on the third coast just kind of zooming ahead with a market-based system to kind of kick all your asses and you know we're ahead of you know every nation in the world except for forum so people take pride in whatever they take pride in that's one is we out out flummoxed the uh, the coastal elites and um, you know solved their problem with market and we still got everybody on the train, but the train was pretty empty there in '09 and '010 when before the cost of the this renewable energy became 
much, much more cost effective. So just to clarify, so it was there were people, Republicans who supported clean energy, but because it became a Democratic issue, there had to be, I guess, because of a two party system, you had to just oppose it on principle. And yet the work still continued in Texas, I guess, just under a different guise or. Well, you know, actually, in the 20th century, God gave us uh, resources from under the ground and said, go make money. And in the 21st century, he just shifted the location to above the ground and said, keep making money. So I think, honestly, money talks louder than all of that. And when people in Texas and elsewhere figured out wind energy and solar energy and now in my own business, storage of energy is a great way to uh, make money and give people jobs and provide for their families. You know, that kind of trumps everything else. I mean, all the ideology just kind of gets left outside by the curb and you know everybody's pretty happy to move on when there's a financial incentive. Pat can you give us a little bit uh, of a high level overview of you know how California regulates this and deals with it and how Texas uh, does and how you see the benefits in Texas I mean today you know Governor Newsom put out some special powers uh, because of the rolling blackouts that are happening you know in California what would you advise him to do? What, what should he do differently in California that you're doing in Texas? The timing is important. I do think the power, again, I'm not, I, I'm just reading the, the popular press, not any trade, not any even the trade publications about the last two nights in California. But as you know, I was, you know, the chairman that had to kind of pick up the mess after the last batch of rolling blackouts toward the end of the Clinton years. And right when I came into the office in 01, we were dealing with a lot of cleanup items. In fact, the commission had been doing it. wasn't just me. It was the full commission and all the staff and a lot of parties that were trying to put the pieces back together in California. But I think what, what we did then was really make sure that the, the, the diversity of infrastructure was available on the grid. And, you know, one of the things that the California parties have been talking about in every speech I've seen in the last seven or eight years has been this thing called the duck curve is what happens in the afternoon when the solar kind of falls off and you need to kind of make up for the fact that demand is increasing as people come home from work or, or as they, you know, their, their house warms up or whatever they need, whatever causes uh, power needs to go up. So that has been known as a problem for a long time. And, you know, as much as I love batter, batteries and other storage technologies, they're new. And so we've got to just deal with the timing. So I think if California would keep some gas pumps around a little longer, because gas is the, the dominant resource still in California, even though everybody says it's renewables, it's natural gas. And so you've got imports coming in from Bonneville and the north, from the north Pacific Northwest. You got a lot of power imports coming in from there. And then you have a lot of natural gas plants that are being shut down kind of sequentially. I used to be chairman of a company, Dynagy, that uh, owned several gas plants in California. And it was not um, a very welcoming place to do business uh, as a gas generator because uh, there were both water issues as well as emissions issues that made it very difficult. But, you know, those trade-offs are what governors get elected to do. And so um, I hope that Governor Newsom does kind of pivot back to the middle on that and and really thinks about a more thoughtful timeline to allow really storage to catch up. Uh, keep the gas generators, keep the Albalo Canyon, although I think that one's already locked and loaded. 
keep those things up and operational. And then at the end, technology will take over when it's ready. I mean, I think that's probably, Julia, the, the difference is we really haven't had a top-down driven system here. It's really been a customer pool. And so we have a lot of we have a lot of customers here, like you know, big box retailers, military bases, independent school districts, rural electric co-ops who still are fully regulated, the city of Austin and the city of San Antonio, which are two of the top ten largest municipal utilities in the country, kind of a heterogeneous mix, uh, but all of whom want to have bragging rights to more elect, uh, electricity coming from renewables, and so. That customer pool has done a lot to get us from, you know, kind of zero to almost 30 gigawatts of, uh, of uh, capacity here in the state. And we'll continue that pool. But that that actually that timing of that has been consistent with when it's economic to do so and when the technology's there. So I think, you know, California definitely got out ahead of the game on solar. You know, I'm on the board of a solar company that uh, built some of those solar plants, SunPower in California and um, did a lot, California did a lot to jumpstart the solar market for the U.S. and the world. So every time I go to the state, I thank them for paying for the nation and the world's R&D because that's in fact what they've done. But the Cal ISO is put there for purpose to really be the watchdog for the grid. And, you know, these, these, uh, this is not a problem that came out of the blue. We've seen this coming for a while. It just, it was, it was probably a year earlier. I thought it would be next year, but this heat wave is pretty intense. Do you think, you know, the news stories, and I've heard from friends in other parts of the country today uh, about rolling blackouts, do you think they provide fodder to people who think renewable energy is entirely unreliable and that it's a joke? Now, you and I both know it's far more complicated than that, what's going on here right now, but but do you think that that someone who wants to discount renewable energy can say, look at California, they talk about this stuff all the time and it gets a little hot and they can't keep the power on? Well, I can just tell you the predictable op-ed came out last night on the wallstreetjournal.com. Um, there it was right there blaming the, the policies of Sacramento. And I thought, you know, what the, a so much better article would have been saying what they want to say about that, but say, but you can do it like they did it in Texas, which is keep the lights on. And in fact, make everybody's rates go down and make the system even more reliable. Um, I mean, there is a way to thread this needle that isn't right, but you know, the Wall Street Journal sometimes wants to get in the ideological battle too and not spend as much time as even they should on getting the facts down. But, you know, it's like any other resource. It's like anything. You don't want a pizza, you don't want a pepperoni pizza every night of the year. You want some veggie, you want something else mixed on it. The mixture of resources on the grid is a good and healthy thing for the grid. And, um, you know, I think we're going to have to figure out the carbon impacts of natural gas a little bit better. But just trust me, they're way ahead of where we were with coal. I mean, we had so much coal in the country, and that's the big story of the last 10 years in my career has been the the total replacement of, of any new coal with natural gas and with wind and solar. It's um It's done a lot to clean up our grid already. Those who are eager just want to keep going further. I'm like, guys, celebrate the success we've got, and then we'll continue to grow forward. But it's a big success. What if there are ways of making the clean energy options, wind, solar, distributed energy resources, including batteries, getting into electric vehicles playing a bigger role in the grid? 
and doing that by actually removing some regulations. So bringing in those free market principles, but rather than relying on, say, gas, actually accelerate the transition to those newer technologies. And couldn't that help address things like rolling blackouts? It's when we do this in-between thing where we end up with these awkward moments in the transition. Um, so what do you think about that? Could we, could we go faster and bolder and actually fight these issues that way? Well, I, again, I think you, you set the agenda back if you go... Oh, too fast, even by a year. So, I mean, I'm talking, Julia, five years instead of, you know, three. I mean, it, it's not like a generation that you've got to keep this around, but you do, you do need to get, um, you know, in this case, fast responsive storage, which is replacing fast responsive natural gas. And, you know, again, my personal business in Texas is doing just that, where we're effectively competing with the gas peaker. And that's all you need. That gas peaker is what's working on the duck curve in California for that hour from five to six or six to seven when the, the solar's dropping off and the demand is still there. So you got to replace it really quick. You replace it really quick with something that's really fast. So batteries are good. So I, again, I'm thinking your point's right. I think the transitions could get really messy, but let the technology and the deployment of that technology in the market drive the timeline as opposed to um, a very aggressive timeline. Again, the policies out there in California set, certainly have accelerated by putting the target dates out there. And they're not target dates when we've got grandchildren in the nursing home. I mean, they're, they're before I'm in the nursing home. So they're short. And but th so they get people to focus. And I think that's helpful. But again, I, I think letting the market work out the details once the, ball, the broad pictures are set is probably going to be a more successful track for all of us not just California. So Pat, uh, you may not know this, uh, but uh, I've been pontificating on Texas politics on this show uh, for a while, even though I don't know much about it. Uh, so I, I beat Shane very badly in a, in a bet about whether Beto uh, could win Texas in his Senate race. He spotted me seven points. Uh, he lost. Uh, he oh, then had to pay for a very course. expensive dinner uh, for Julie and I uh, out so I have a bet with my wife, who's from Houston, uh, that Joe Biden can win Texas in this election. And she says, no. Uh, is Texas turning blue? Who's going to win Texas uh, in this election? Uh, and what impact is all this clean energy uh, development happening in, in, in Texas? Is that, is that a part of Texas turning blue? Is that a factor in it? Or is it for other reasons? No, it's a part of Texas turning green, which is a <laughs> separate color. Again, <laughs> all right. I think the genesis of the whole renewable thing was um, probably keeps it from being too overtly political here. It's it's an economic development, you know, gift. I mean, really, the you know, we could all act like Texas did all this right. But bo bottom line, the good Lord gave us beautiful resources and a great place on the map to take advantage of it. So, you know, we could sit there and but, you know, it's kind of like being born on third base. <laughs> You're pretty close to home plate. Just when you start off, so it, you know, I, I should I should caveat that, but I, I, the broader issue is a good one, and I, I was thinking about that today, remembering because I had as I was a staff person in a in a state agency back in the '90s when Ann Richards was governor, and she was our last statewide, you know, big Democrat. We had a few lower offices that were Democrat for the rest, you know, in the, in the mid '90s after she left, but. You know, I sat there and thought about, okay, that was the last major Democrat elected in Texas, I think. And 
you know, there was nobody like her. I mean, there's nobody like her on the scene today. You know, and I was sitting there looking last week, thinking about, well, who's Joe Biden going to pick? And I thought, well, you know, in another day, he'd have picked Ann Richards. But um, she's not around anymore. But God rest her soul, because she was a hell of a an iconic Texan. I mean, even here, I am a Republican. I just adored her. She was larger than life. So, I mean, I, I think if you have a compelling story, you always have a shot here because it's still pretty populist. Um, you know, conservative, yeah, you know, we like we like God, we like guns, and we like jobs. So if you kind of line up on all three, which the Republicans have done a little more successfully than, than the... Um, what if you're a climate denier and a crook? Does that compensate? Is that all like you choose Joe Biden? I, I, think, I think that could probably help you. Get <laughs> that could probably split a few suburbs. I don't know, Brandon, that you know, there, are, there are so many people. I mean, I'm in Houston. So there are a lot of people here that have jobs that are somehow related to the oil and gas industry and not the other newer, newer, newer energies like we've been talking about. And so there is probably, if not a front burner concern, there's a second burner that, gosh, if this all collapses tomorrow, um, that's going to pull down everything in our economic ecosystem in this whole part of the state, if not part of the country. So, um, you know, there's I think there's some deep fear that that, you know, not necessarily what Biden said, because I think of all the ones in the primary, he was probably the more moderate about the, the these issues in particular i mean he wasn't going to ban fracking for example um regulate it fine i mean i think the states have done some states have done better than others but i think some others have given it a bad name so it could call for a little bit of federal uh, love there but you know I, I think uh people get scared when you talk about stuff that can impact their job Biden can make the case that he's not going to endanger your job. Pat, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that um, Brandon often talks about stuff he doesn't understand. So that was not, that was not a one-off. But uh, but but I wonder. Well, so I, I, what I wanted to say is, as a Texan, I think you know, Pat, but I was that right. um, I did win. I was wrong. I'll admit I lost. But but Ted Cruz is is a deeply unpopular individual. It's not like you know he beat Ronald Reagan or, or you know came within seven points of Ronald Reagan. But aside from that. Um, you know, I'm going to call on your Republican credentials more than your energy regulator uh, credentials now, but I'm often the, the lone sort of defender of the shield on this show. And frankly, you know, in Southern California where I live. And so uh, it can it can be said, you know, oh, well, how can you support, you know, QAnon? How can you support rigged elections? How can you? And of course, I don't support any of those things. I didn't even know what QAnon was till last week. I certainly don't support rigged elections. I certainly don't support, you know, any sort of rhetoric that's divisive or mean or hurtful or, or sexism or racism, all that. But I still support the tenets of the Republican Party. And I'm having a more difficult time trying to convince my colleagues on the other side that there is a strong sort of moral, uh, productive, economically capable Republican Party. It's just not what it's being displayed as in the national media scene. Do you think I'm crazy or are you sort of aligned with me in that way? Or in the Congress thing, it's not just about, you know, what's being displayed in the media. It's what the elected officials of the Republican Party are doing. No, I'm, and, it, and it's tough. I mean, as a, I'm, it's divided my, my house. The enablement of some very unusual approaches that President Trump's taken by the Congress, where there's not really that kind of natural tension that um, certainly we saw on President Bush. I mean, the Republicans would kind of yank him back on, not much, but on some things, it, it was that, 
that give and take, you knew the boundaries were what they were. And so I think the changing of that, I think most Republicans kind of assume we needed a wrecking ball. So, you know, probably wouldn't a dream for Ted Cruz or Donald Trump, but those were the two last standing at the end of the game with Governor Kasich. Um, it surprised me, actually, that Kasich didn't get more of the people that think like you're saying, Shane, that are just kind of the normal Republicans that we've had up through the bushes. Um, why that didn't kind of fall in behind Kasich more, but that, that's probably a failing of Kasich than, than anything else. He's speaking at the Democratic National Convention this Tonight, week. Tonight, I think, yeah, which I thought was pretty surprising because a lot of people, including me, have a lot of respect for Kasich. I campaigned in Ohio uh, for Kasich when he was running for governor the first time. So I, I, that that's sort of the stuff that, that rubs me the wrong way, Pat, is people are basically saying the Republican Party needs to be revolted against, whereas I think it's a certain brand of rhetoric that needs to be revolted against. Well, it might be deeper than rhetoric, though, Shane. I, I, I don't, I, you know, I'm not into destroy the party so a phoenix can arise from the ashes. But, um, you know, we may be looking at our, our years in the in the cold blizzard to kind of re, re-strike the purity, kind of the post-Goldwater uh, years where you kind of re-purified and came back with the Reagan, uh, although you had a Nixon in the way. Um, so it, it was... Uh, I don't know. I, I'm not. The, I'm not the best political prognosticator, but I do know that personalities do matter. And Ted Cruz came close to losing here to a very charismatic Democrat who was on most issues substantially to the left of me um, and a lot of people I know. But you know, I don't know everybody in Texas. It's a very diverse state. We love that. But um, but, but yeah, you know, we on the other hand, we had a pretty moderate, nice. Uh, you know, not strident, but good guy governor who who Mark who got a very different poll result. So there was a batch of kind of the strident Tea Party types that got really close elections. Cruz, the lieutenant governor, the attorney general, they all were really close and got good and scared. And then you had a batch like Governor Abbott and the comptroller. So just to put some numbers around this, you know, we're talking about Texas being in contention. Last polls I checked, Trump was slightly ahead of Biden, but they're almost equal in the polls right now for all intents and purposes. And they have uh, gone back and forth a little bit. The Biden campaign is spending massively on ads in Texas right now. Texas is among the states targeted by a Because 200- I've been raising all that money, Julia. Where do you think it's coming from? <laughs> Texas is being targeted by a $280 million advertising blitz, uh, along with Georgia, Iowa, and Ohio. Um, but we have to remember that Trump carried the state of Texas by nine percentage points four years ago. So some strategists say that while it's drawing closer, it's still out of reach for Democrats right now, just to put a bit of context around it. Um, I want to go back to Houston. You mentioned Houston oil and gas industry base there and the role of markets versus governments stepping in. I'm just curious because it does seem like there's going to be people going through that energy transition and going to need a just transition, you know, taking jobs that are no longer there and, and finding new ones for them. Markets don't always help with that, right? If, if there's no job, no one's there to retrain and things like that. Um, we're already seeing people who would offer their land for oil and gas not making any money, pure economics. They're making more money putting solar panels on their land than they are allowing people to go, uh, you know, dig for oil and gas. So I'm just curious, do you think the appetite for a government intervention in Texas will change? Do you think that the needs are going to be so great that there will be a desire for 
even local politicians to step in and offer things like retraining programs and having not just a pure free market approach, but a little more hands-on to cope with the transition that we're seeing right now? So I think, um, yes, I think there would be, uh, and I don't think it's a big stretch. I, th I think the nature of the programs here is probably a little stingier than other states, but you know, that infrastructure is in place here too. the, you know, workforce commission, which was a, a friend of mine was head of that during the Bush years. So I happen to, to know that a little bit better than most, but you know, there's a, there's a pretty good infrastructure in place to funnel the retraining dollars there. I just, I don't think a bigger, a bigger approach where you, well, I don't, I don't know. Look at, look at what just happened in Austin. They relocated the, the uh, Tesla. Well, not relocated, but located the next Tesla manufacturing plant there. So, again, I think government is always going to play that role of getting businesses here so that jobs can be created. I remember Governor Richards, one of her big things that she ran on was she got uh, Toyota to come to Texas. Um, uh, Governor Bush, you know, other things going on there. But, that, you know, that, that relocation, that that kind of approach is where the government intervention happens, which is, you know, flashy and bagging the big game. But the nitty gritty work, yes, of course, we'll pay the unemployment benefits, but they're relatively stingy down here until they were enhanced by the federal uh, CARES Act. But, I, you know, the retraining, I don't think that would be a, a big stretch kind of philosophically for a kind of a, a low government state or not just Texas, but probably any of the other ones that are kind of on the smaller end of government intervention. That, that's, that's one that I think this crisis is showing all of us just how Republican we aren't, um, you know, because there are people that are deciding, gosh, I'm really glad government's here to, yes, government shut down my business, but, you know, like they are when they condemn my land for a power line, they're paying me for it. So there's that kind of trade-off that's very constitutional um, that I think is, playing out here in an interesting kind of way. Do, do you support a green recovery? And you don't have to use those words if you don't believe that's the right wording, but would you support a major stimulus effort that had energy and low carbon energy specifically at its core? Do you think that's what's needed no matter who wins? Like the Biden plan. Like, would you support the Biden plan? Uh, I don't think I do. I mean, I was actually the, one of the things that really messed up competitive markets was when we were working to have to implement the clean power plan that the EPA put forth under President Obama. And as much as I, again, agree with the the uh, direction, the what it would have done to competitive markets was really implode them. And because it it's so non-economic, again, I think a, an approach that would work from from the power side, I think the bigger issue is we got to do something in transportation. So moving things along with electric vehicles and then making sure that the electricity that's used to charge those vehicles comes from clean sources. Cause you don't want to hear that happens in Texas cause it's the wind that blows at night. But in California, it's, the wind is not blowing at night and it's all the, the fossil fuel plants are running at night, which is when most people would charge a car in Ohio, you would run coal plants at night to charge a car. Okay. That doesn't really work out too well in the carbon, but go into the power world, which is the world I know best. I think probably setting the national standard again, like I mentioned on the on on California a while ago, set something that's that's the aspirational or not aspirational that is the standard, and then the mechanism that's used to get you there will be will be what you use, but not not doing what we've done in the past under both Democrats and Republicans, which is subsidizing specific uh, technologies or specific uh, companies because. 
picking the winner, that crony capitalism stuff doesn't work. And it's got a bad, bad history. Utilities are making headlines on all that right now as we speak. But if we're if we're going to um, you know a cleaner future, say we want to we want this as a target. I'm honestly the broader the target, the better. So if you did a carbon tax across everything or carbon program, I don't know if we can say tax even anymore, but a carbon goal and make that where we're going, then let the technologies and all the innovators loose. I think that, and that's where I think there's a lot of common ground, Brandon, would be because we all embrace the Silicon Valley kind of model and letting, let the smart people figure this out and let's just go for broke. And then let them get rich doing it. If they do it right, get out of the way. Don't tax them too much. Don't disincent them. Don't crony capitalize their competitor. Let the best product win, but set a target that's enforceable so that people know we got to get there, make it long enough so we don't have issues like happened in California this weekend, which is we moved too fast to shut down the gas plants and we didn't have enough really hardware to kind of keep the lights on through that critical period when the solar's dropping off. But we'll have that in five years. So let's just, you know, maybe calibrate the timetable just a little bit as technology goes forward. But Again, I, I, I just have lived long enough to know that oh, even a well-meaning government will muck it up and it slows it down. And that's my main interest is let's just get the hell there. Um, I've got four boys and I want to want them to grow up in a, you know, a vibrant world with great jobs and a great environment, clean air and green grass and clean water and all this great stuff that, you know, we could do with seven or eight billion people on the planet, but we got to do it a little more thoughtfully than when we had three or four billion. So let's make sure we can, you know, be Catholics and breed like rabbits, but still have a good <laughs> place to live. Um, so we'll get there. But I just, again, think if, if government's not quite as bossy about it, we can get there faster and, and a whole lot cheaper. We talked about Texas having free markets. I just have to ask, you know, there is an RPS in the state. So it's not like policy did yeah. not play a role. So it wasn't like it was all free markets in Texas and that's what did it all. So what, what was helpful was we set a target and the target was 2000 megawatts for the first year. And then the legislature came back six years later and go, wow, we hit that really quick. Let's go to 5,000 megawatts. And while, while we're there, let's put in a aspirational goal of 10,000 megawatts. And this isn't the statewide is about, say 80. So 10,000 out of 80, is what, 10 out of 80 is what we're talking about. So that moved up pretty quick. Well, every year the, the, the goal got hit in the 10 year goal got hit in four years. The first time the, the increase in the goal, 10 more years got hit in six years. And then we went to 10 and then we went, to, we're now close to 30. So, I mean, what it was though, and I think this is, this is the, the important part. And this is why you've got to get alignment with the nerds like me who are the regulators is, is it's all part of a welcome mat. And so what happened here is people look and they go, God, that's George Bush. And he's running, probably going to be, or might be running for president at the time. It wasn't quite out yet. And that democratic legislature, because it was by part, it was, we were not fully Republican then. Um, that was the next uh, election cycle. But so it was a balanced legislature, almost unanimous. And look at this pro renewable stuff. And, cleaning up the old polluting power plant stuff and, you know, all this stuff. This is really great. So people said, uh, neat, we're coming into Texas. So uh, the problem was there are a lot of other things that had to be changed. Like it has to be easy to build a, a windmill. 
So streamlining or getting rid of the need for a permit, unless you're near an Air Force base, you have to get a permit for them. But if you could do a deal with the landowner, you could put up a windmill. So we got rid of all that stuff. So we kind of did the underbrush. I, we changed all the, yeah, just it's all the nerdy work of getting the rules written that were written for the coal and the gas world to apply to the wind world. And that's what I did for the last two years of my of my job there was getting smart enough to figure out how to make sure the little guy wasn't getting screwed. So it was fun. And everybody, everybody's made me some wind savior and hero. I said, I don't know shit about wind, but I wanted to make sure that the little guy wasn't getting screwed. And that was the little guy. And now it's a great big guy. So I'm not worrying about him. We're worrying about solar. Then they got great big. So now we go help out storage guys. You know, that's the trick. Just give everybody a seat at the poker table so they can play. And then let them let the best one win. Do you think Republicans writ large, I don't mean Republican voters, I mean, you know, electeds in Congress could support something like what you described? I've been advocating for a clean energy standard that doesn't say, you know, zero percent emissions next year, but even something like 2050 with some reasonable variance on what counts as clean, you know, maybe natural gas, maybe coal with carbon capture. And then just an understanding that certain facilities, like if you build a state of the art facility in 2012 that was compliant with all Obama era regulations and your debt recovery on that is 2040, like let them just let them operate and, and pay off the debt and retire in a meaningful way. Do you think if there was a thoughtful policy like that that doesn't pick a year randomly, but actually looks at the generation resources we have online today, looks at what a reasonable transition looks like, but sets that target. So, you know, in 2050, it's, it's go time. Do you think there's a sufficient number of Republicans who could get behind an idea like that? Uh, you know, I think Republicans and Democrats both like the cheap headline and you know, that what you just laid out makes total sense to the, to the wonk in me, but I don't know that that's shows that, that, that could be misinterpreted in the primary. The the worst thing that happens is the Republican primary just gets rid of kind of moderate guys because, or gals, because they, uh, aren't towing the party line on, you know, climate change doesn't exist or, um, you know, they're going to take away my guns or, you know, that kind of stuff. It just is very simplistic. And so what you just laid out is the right answer, which is let's be thoughtful. I, on the one about the, the people that have the long debt, we in the in the utility restructuring we did in the 90s, we just figured out what that amount was, cut the check and said the plants, the plants paid for, we're done. You can do that. So, I mean, there are a couple ways to deal with that. But that's a conceptually, you're right, is we did something at the time and it was the right thing to do. Let that play itself out. That may not be fast enough for some. So there's a middle ground there. Some people are going to AOC wants it tomorrow. You know, the Koch brothers want it. Never. There's some place in between there. That's the, that's the politically right answer. I, you know, again, the bigger answer is, will it actually do anything to meaningfully move the, the temperature meter for the planet? I, I wish I knew that. Don't we all? Well, thank you so much, Pat, for taking part in this. We really appreciate it. This is fun. I love you smart people, and I love that y'all are different opinions, and you're all still getting along. Isn't that a good reason to be getting along? You can't be toady. <laughs> Thanks, Pat. It's a tenuous situation. I, I think Brandon likes me, but I think I think he's getting closer to a breaking point. Than they maybe both hate me more. I, I don't know. I'm always bugging everyone. them about Absolutely microphones. <laughs> I'm for sure the black sheep here. <laughs> Brandon, I hope you enjoyed uh, 
hearing another Republican who I think you would agree seems like a, a good human and doesn't share the uh, the QAnon uh, line of blood. I, I know. I just wonder, and we could talk about this in this few minutes. It's like, you know, are you in the vast minority of your party? Like that's that's what I'm trying to understand. And it seems like Trumpism is the dominant gene. Um, I'd love to be proven wrong. I really would. <laughs> But I can't, I, you know, if all of the members of Congress are supporting this stuff uh, and the people that are winning these primaries are, you know, sometimes these QAnon folks, what does that say? Yeah, I think it's it's obvious to me, Brandon, that it's the recessive gene, because obviously a lot of these people I work with, I hang out with, I know, you know, traditional Republican voters couldn't say I know how they're going to vote this cycle, uh, to be sure, at least at the top of the ticket. But I really think that um, the primary system has has shattered the Republican Party as I know it. As you know, I know that a little bit from personal experience, but also from watching these outcomes. I never heard of QAnon until that woman, I can't even think of her name. Honestly, I don't remember what state it was, Georgia, maybe. Um just won a primary and that made me look this stuff up and try to figure out, you know, what the heck was going on. But I think if the Republican party really, you know, wants to not even rebrand, just go back to what we always were, uh, the best way to do that is for the national party to become far more aggressive uh, in the primary system or look to States to, to have, you know, a top two primary, you know, like somewhere like California does so that people with crossover appeal can have success. But I think, you know, we're reading in the press now that there's some grumbling in the conference that McCarthy has, um, has sort of hitched his wagon uh, to this brand of Republicanism. And it's bringing down a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, traditional Republicans at the same time. So we'll sort of see how that goes as, as time plays out. Yeah. I mean, Shane, you know, what do you say to, it's not I mean, people like Stuart Stevens, you know, who is a major Republican strategist, you know, worked on five presidential campaigns, was the chief strategist to Mitt Romney, much like David Axelrod's position, you know, with, um, you know, Barack Obama. Uh, he's not like a low level guy. He's saying this is the dominant gene. You know, he just wrote this book. Um, and you look at things like in the polling where a majority of Republicans you know, believe that Barack Obama wasn't a U.S. citizen, <laughs> wasn't born in this country. So, you know, I'm having a hard time. I, I want you, I want to believe you and I, and I wish it were true, but I, I think I need to be more convinced. Yeah, I, I hear that. And I think we could, we could go back and forth nonstop, but I would say, you know, for Stuart Stevens, for, for Governor Kasich, for, for anyone who, you know, is going to the democratic side, you have to be for something, right? So if what you're for, if you're against Trumpism, I'm with you, but if what you're for is the Democratic Party, then you're a Democrat, right? You're not a Republican. If what you're for is, you know, what I consider traditional conservatism, you don't have to brand under the Republican name. You can call it something different, but that's something we're fighting for, I think. But you could still fight for it and not vote for it in one election. The whole adherence to party to the death, I feel like, is a problem on all sides, you know, instead of just picking the best 100%. person for the job, right? A hundred percent. But but my point is, if you don't like the way things are going with the party that you once loved, Work hard to reform it, to fix it, to reinvigorate it, find a Reagan to run behind. But I think, you know, sort of the negativity is not helpful. Um, you can say I'm going to vote for Joe Biden because I prefer him. That's totally fine. Uh, but I think just saying the party is, is beyond repair. If that's true, then let's figure out a new platform uh, and call it something different um, or, or just sort of try to reinvigorate the party. But if you're for democratic policies, you're a Democrat. And that's fine. Uh, the thing that I 
most frustrated with Shane and why you can see in our Slack channel, my I'm getting edgier is I understand the policy disputes, like the stuff we just talked about with Pat Wood, you know, how do you design a regulatory scheme to enable clean energy? Is it, you know, more like California or more like Texas? Those are, those are wonderful policy debates to have, but the issues that we're having right now are not policy debates. It's about, it's anti-democratic actions, things like what's happening with the post office, things like firing the inspector generals, things like shutting down the census before it can, can be completed you know, during a pandemic. Those are anti-democratic issues. You know, and I, I don't see Republicans, even just beyond the elected officials, like standing up and saying like, you know, this is not who we are. This is not, this is not American democracy. You know, what, what do you say? I think it's hard to find people. uh, And I mean this sincerely that are truly informed. I mentioned to you this morning, but I posted something in Slack for you to look at from, I think it was Byron York, who was a conservative uh, writer. And, you know, he sort of walked through in granular detail, the postal issues. And basically, you know, what I learned is that what's going on with the post office, i.e., you know, replacing old machines, getting rid of certain boxes. These were things that were actually planned, Brandon, in the Obama administration because they noticed there were more packages than letters. So you just need different equipment, different types of sorting equipment, different types of boxes. The problem here is that Trump didn't understand that. So he said, if we don't give them the money, they can't vote. No one should think that's okay. To be clear, no one, Republican, Democrat, or otherwise, should think it's okay to say, I have a way to stop you from voting. That's not okay. I don't think that's what's happening, but I think you need more people like Byron York to take the time to figure out what the heck is going on, why did someone say what they said, and what can we do about it? And it looks like the what can we do about it is nothing other than make sure that the election, you know, that there's electoral integrity and that the post office is able to handle the mail-in ballots that go through. Uh, but but that that's where I get a little bit stressed out because if the whole, you know, government apparatus was being used to stifle the vote, that's clearly a problem that goes beyond party. But if it's just that the president said something awful, but that's not actually what's going on in the functioning of the post office, that's a totally different conversation. Well, because we have to wrap up our show, you know, normally we'd end it with a segment called Say Something Nice, where you each say something redeeming about the opposing political party. But instead of that, will you guys take a bet on Biden winning or not winning Texas? I would take a straight bet. I can't lay seven (laughs) points again. My wallet can't handle it. (laughs) Would you lay uh, Biden finishes closer than Beto? Would you give me two and a half? I, I kind of feel like Brandon. The onus should be on you. I, I was super com- I was comfortable okay. last time right. with with okay. Cruz winning okay. big. I mean, you think Biden might win this thing, right? Yeah, I do. I really do. Um, my wife disagrees with me. She knows a lot more about Texas than I do. Um, so you're gonna throw but, down Brandon uh, Biden winning Texas? I'm I'm take the straight up bet. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. We, we got to like get restaurants open by mid-November is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm ready to eat on your tab. Well, how about Soho Malibu? Because I have a lot of credits there that they gave me because we haven't been able to use it. So <laughs> I gotta well, that, that's that. perfect. As you know, I didn't get in. So I'd love to come as your guest. <laughs> I love it. The terms have been set. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. This is Political Climate. Remember to tweet at us at poly underscore climate. And of course, subscribe on any of the services where you can get podcasts. Just hit subscribe and catch all of our shows. Thanks everyone for listening. And we'll be back next week.